0: Well, as uh, David mentioned, this is week six in our six-week series, The Five Solas, foundational truth that defines our faith. And today, we're looking at the sola that brings all of them together, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to our memory verse for this week, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for this simple challenge. And this is what has been given to every believer. In whatever we do, we are to do it for the glory of God. The glory of God alone. As we unfold this word today, we ask your Holy Spirit to take this and use it in all of our hearts. As we have learned by scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, it is all for the glory of God alone. And may you help us to have an even deeper understanding of our purpose in life is to live for the praise of your glory. And we'll thank you in your precious name. Amen. Over 34 years ago, Carla and I moved into a house that was 1,400 feet, square feet, and we had no kids. A few years later, we were living in a house that was 1,400 square feet, and we had three kids. And so we decided we were going to add a little room on the back of the house. Now, I had a friend, Roger, who was a contractor. and He did most of the work, but he let me do what I could because I enjoyed doing that stuff. But there are certain things I don't know how to do. So when it came time to stucco the outside, I said, Roger, you know a good stucco guy? He goes, I know a guy. He is amazing, the best stucco guy I've ever seen, and he's cheap. I said, man, that's my kind of guy. Give me his number. So I, I call this guy up. I talk to him. I'm really impressed with him, his character, the way he approaches things, how he handles his crew. And to make a long story short, I hired him. And I'm telling you, I wasn't told the half of it. This guy was amazing, professional, courteous. His crew's cleaned up was the best stucco job I could have possibly gotten, and he was cheaper by far than anyone else. Well, needless to say, I went around singing this guy's praises. For a while in the church or wherever I was, when I heard people were building something, I said, hey, you need stucco done? Yeah. Let me tell you, I know a guy. I know a guy who's amazing, the best stucco guy I've ever seen, and he's cheap. I went around singing this guy's praises. By the way, I just want to say, if you're gonna ask me who it is, I'm not even sure he's in business anymore, but (laughs) I went around singing this guy's praises. In many, many ways, you could say that I was glorifying him because I'd come to know him who he was, I'd come to see what he could do, and now I was letting everybody know what they could experience if they too were to use this guy. I was glorifying him. You know, it was about 40 years ago that I began doing the same thing with God. I came to know who God was. I came to see what he could do in my life, in the lives of all who trust and believe in him. And so I began singing his praises. I began glorifying God. And I began telling everyone I could about who God is and what he's done. You and I are called to know this God and to make him known. In short, we are called to glorify God. The Apostle Paul summed it up like this to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. So so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The word glory is uh, gone into a bit more detail in the workbook this week, but the Greek word for glory is doxa, from where we get the song, the doxology. Now if you've Not been around a while, or you maybe didn't grow up in the church as I did, and that was all new to me. But the doxology is a song of praise to God, doxa, doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. (laughs) Yeah. If you vaguely recognize it, I'm not going to go any further because it's supposed to glorify God, and my singing kind of does the opposite. It's the doxology. It's from the doxa. Now, the word glory, or the word doxa, means to suppose or have an opinion. In the simplest form, bringing glory to God is to come to have a right and high opinion of God because you've come to know him as he is. And you seek to make the glory of this God known. That's the meaning behind the word. What's the problem in the world today? Most people don't know God. They've never seen him. They've never met him. They've got faulty and low views of God. So they invent their own gods and religions to go with them. Our role is to know this true God and to make him known. That's the glory. God's glory is the visible display of his true person, the fullness of all God is and all God does. John Hanna described God's glory like this in his book, How Do We Glorify God? Simply this way, God's glory is the visible display of his brightness and excellency. God displays his glory in creation, in his word, in his son, and remarkably has chosen to reveal his glory in us. This foundational truth became the motto and rallying cry of the reformation. Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. It became the glue that bound all the other solas together. Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, for the glory of God alone which is why the Westminster Shorter Catechism declared the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, which is why Paul proclaimed and lived 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Soli deo gloria means that all that we are and all that we do is to be for the glory of God alone. But how do we know this to be a foundational truth? It's because in what we have been able to see of what God has done to make his glory known. It is seen in the fact that we were created for the glory of God alone. We were saved for the glory of God alone. And we are now called to live for the glory of God alone. We were created for the glory of God alone. Do you remember God revealing to Moses the account of the creation of humanity? Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We are made in God's image and likeness. One of my favorite rides at Disneyland is Pirates of the Caribbean and primarily because I get motion sick on about every other ride that's there. I almost lost it over London once on Peter Pan. I mean it's embarrassing to admit that but And I especially like Pirates of the Caribbean because of the movie that was made by that name that made the character of Captain Jack Sparrow indispensable to the story. Now, if you've never seen it, but maybe you've been to Pirates, you notice as you're traveling along, Captain Jack Sparrow begins popping up all over the place. And he looks just like the guy in the movie. And the reason that's true is that the Imagineers at Disney realized with a movie like that, and so many people familiar with what he looks like, Just your average old dummy popping out of a barrel isn't going to work for most people. This guy's got to look like the real deal. In fact, they did such a good job of creating his likeness that when Johnny Depp last year, the real guy in the movie, donned the outfit he wore in the movie, he went into Pirates of the Caribbean, into the ride, and he was peering in places, and people didn't even know it wasn't the dummy. Because the dummy looks so much like the real guy. You see, the Imagineers at Disney had a goal in mind, that when you look at the dummy that is Captain Jack, they wanted you to feel like you're looking at the real thing. Do you know that that is why God created us as human beings in his image and likeness? It's amazing for me to think that God determined that when somebody looks at a dummy like me, they would be able to see a bit of God in that image. That's why he created all of humanity. God made us for that purpose. Then when you saw another human being, you'd be seeing the glory and likeness of God. This is why Moses was given the details of God creating man the way he did. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image and repeated it. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, why is that Satan works so hard to work through the world to blind people to our creation story? trying to get people to believe in an evolutionary theory that is so full of holes, you have to have more faith to believe that than the truth of what God's written. Why is it that Satan works so hard to blind people to the truth that they were created in the image of God? Why is it that Satan works so hard even to blind people today to the fact that he creates them male and female according to his choice? Because... All of the glory of God is revealed in humanity in those things. And Satan hates the glory of God and is doing everything he can to blind people to it. That's why those things keep emerging. That's why all that transgendered nonsense keeps appearing. That's why the evolutionary nonsense keeps being proliferated. Satan is behind this to blind people to the truth that we were created in the image and likeness of God. God's glory is to shine. Image and likeness are two terms describing the same thing. Before the Reformation, the church taught that they were separate. That the image of God remained after the fall and sin of man, but the likeness did not. And so they taught that in Christ, you could come back to Jesus, and through Jesus, you could then do good works that would help restore the likeness. Well, the Reformers rejected that because... It put the emphasis on man, that Christ saves you, but now you do the work to get back the glory of God. It was another system of works. It brought glory to man and not to God. It was to be solely deo gloria, to glory to God alone. <clears throat> to be made in God's image and likeness has nothing to do with our physical appearance. It means we are created with God's mind, God's character, God's will, and God's emotions. In fact. The Latin for humanity is homo sapien, which means thinking, wise, rational man. In other words, there was an image of God stamped in us in mind and heart and emotion that the animal world didn't have. We are not like the animals. We were created above them for God's glory. In fact, the words image and glory are used interchangeably in the New Testament. So when God said, we made in our image, he was really saying, "I made in my glory. It's the same interchangeable word. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, Paul uses the words that way. He said, a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Now, there's a popular verse to quote around in our politically correct world. You, you better duck if you start quoting this. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, what it's saying is this. God put his image and his glory in the man he created. So man was the, was the glory of God. God took the woman out of man. So since man was the glory of God and the woman was taken to be the glory and image of man, therefore now the man and the woman are both revealers of the same glory. What people often see as a negative is a huge confirmation that all of humanity is created for the glory of God. Humanity has inestimable worth because we are made in the image and likeness in God, and that was made that way for his glory to be revealed. So the question is, what happened to the glory? Well, Adam and Eve sinned, and that created separation from God. They died spiritually, and they had no relationship with God. In fact, you keep reading the Genesis account, they hid from God. They still had the image of God. They could still think, they could still reason, they could still choose, they could still feel, but they didn't do those things the way God did them. They were doing them the way they did them. Man in his sinful state doesn't think like God, doesn't act like God, doesn't choose like God, doesn't feel like God, because the glory of God has been lost. It has been marred. It has been veiled. The great reformers Luther and Calvin wrote, we still bear God's image but it's only a relic of the original. The apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1 that we had exchanged the truth and the glory about God. We exchanged that for a lie and we worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And the created thing that we choose to worship most is self. David Van Drunen, in his book, God's Glory Alone, wrote, there are many ways we can characterize the first sin in the Garden of Eden. But many theologians have highlighted the pride of Adam and Eve. And at the heart of pride is a desire for self-glory. God made them in his image, an astounding blessing and a position of true honor, but lured by the serpent, they longed to be like God in their own way rather than under God's rightful authority. Rather than ruling over the other creatures in submission to God, they let themselves be ruled by the creature, the serpent, ultimately Satan, and they tried to submit God to themselves. Van Juno went on to say, self-glorification has become the hallmark of sinful humanity in the footsteps of his father Adam. And ironically... This prideful self-glorification is actually degrading. When sinful humans knew God, but neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles, quoting from Romans 1. He went on to say they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. He said, We see such an important truth here. God made us in his image to reflect his glory, but obliged us to bow before his supreme authority. As soon as we tried to usurp his honor and, dissatisfied with the great privileges he granted, sought to glorify ourselves, we became mired in miserable idolatry, unable to rule the world or even to rescue ourselves. We are still made in his image. We have value above and distinct from all the animal world. But in our sinful state, we can't find the joy or the fulfillment of soli deo gloria, living for the glory of God alone, which leads us to the primary reason that God saves us. Not only created for the glory of God alone, but we were saved for the glory of God alone. Paul said in Ephesians 1, verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, You are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. God saved us to restore the glory that was lost. If you are a car buff at all, a 1957 Chevy Bel Air two-door sport coupe is a prize collector, collector item amongst car buffs. You could have bought one of those cars new right off the showroom in 1957 between four and $5,000, depending on the options that you chose. Uh, Carl and I were in Bakersfield recently. We went to a junkyard auction, and to my amazement, they had a fully restored 1957 Chevy Bel Air two-door Sport Coupe sitting there to be auctioned off amidst all this other junk. It sold for 10 times what it originally sold for. Now, this car was immaculate. It had been restored to the glory it had when it was first driven off the showroom floor. Someone went to a lot of work and a lot of expense to restore that old car to its original glory. Do you know that that's what God has done for you and me? God has done a lot of work and paid a horrendous price in order to restore to us the original glory that was lost in the fall. Paul told the Ephesians that God predestined, called, saved, and restored them for the praise of his glory alone. Ephesians 1.11, in him we are also chosen. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, You were created to reveal his glory. That glory was lost due to sin in the garden, which is why Paul described our lostness like this in Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory. You fall short of the glory. That's what sin does in all of us. But he went on to say in Romans 3, verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. The glory was lost due to sin, but God, through the sacrifice of his son, made the way for God to restore the glory. So that now by faith, when we believe God and the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. Christ comes to live in us. The glory of God returns, and Christ is living now that glory out through our lives. This is the primary reason Jesus went to the cross. Let me say it again. This is the primary reason Jesus went to the cross. Jesus didn't go to the cross primarily to save us from our sins. He did not go primarily because God loved us. He didn't go primarily because we were needing to be saved from hell. He didn't go to the cross primarily so that we could be in heaven with him forever. Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins. Jesus went to the cross to give us eternal life. Jesus went to the cross because God loves us. Jesus went to the cross to save us from hell. Jesus went to the cross so that we could have life in heaven with God forever. But the primary reason Jesus went to the cross and died is the primary reason Jesus lived. It was to bring glory to God. That was the primary reason. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in the upper room the night before he went to the cross in an intimate moment with the Father that was recorded for your benefit and mine? John 17, verse 1, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come, the hour of my death, my crucifixion, the hour you have scheduled from before the creation of time. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may, what? Jesus laid aside some of that essential glory in order to take on humanity, but he lived for the glory of God in that humanity. Now he's praying that that full glory he had in eternity would be restored. It would be seen. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. People, this all-glorious Jesus is the one who's now living in you if you're a Christian. And that glory of Jesus that he asked the Father to reveal is now being revealed in you and me. The glory has been restored. That's why John, or why Jesus prayed a little bit later in John 17, verse 22, I have given them, the disciples, the glory that you gave me. That's why Paul told the Colossian church in Colossians 1, verse 27, to them, to the Gentiles, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That hope causes us to live with a boldness and a confidence because the glory of Christ doesn't fade in us. The glory of Christ lives in us. Do you remember when Moses saw God's glory on the mountain at Mount Sinai? In the wilderness after leading the children out of Egypt? God brings Moses up to the mountain. He sees God in his glory revealed in that burning bush. And when Moses came down from the mountain, what? His face glowed with the glory of God. But he had to put a veil over it so that people couldn't see that the glory faded. It wasn't permanent. Moses would go back to the mountain. He'd meet with God. The glory would be there again. He'd come back down. He'd go into the tent of meeting. The glory would be there. He'd come back out. It would fade away. He constantly had to cover his face with a veil. The glory was fading. Paul said, we now... Behold God's glory all the time because he lives in us and with us, and in an ever-increasing glory that doesn't fade, the spirit of God is now revealing that glory in us. Our glory doesn't fade because it's his glory. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for this, to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. They read the Old Testament, and there's still a veil over the glory. They're not seeing Jesus in it. But when Jesus comes, that veil is taken away. Verse 15. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. People, the glory that shines in us now is not fading. It's permanently resident there. And the more we behold God's glory in the scriptures, the more we behold God's glory in creation, the more we behold God's glory in each other, that is an ever-increasing glory that shines more and more and more and more. It's not fading. It's increasing, Paul said. So once again, God can cause us to think like God, to act like God, to choose like God, to feel like God. God is displaying his glory in us in Christ. Which is why we're all called to live, not for our glory, but for his. Because we're not only created for his glory alone and saved for his glory alone, but we are all called to live for God's glory alone. Which is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Living for God's glory in the everyday. I was reading a piece from a leadership journal in which the writer was telling about uh, a time when Martin Luther was approached, the great reformer, was approached by a working man who wanted to know how he could serve God, how he could glorify God in his life. And so Luther asked him, what is your work now? The man said, I'm a shoemaker. And much to the cobbler's surprise, Luther replied, then make good shoes and sell them at a fair price. The article went on to say, Luther didn't tell the man to make Christian shoes. He didn't tell the man to leave his shoe business and become a monk. What he told the guy is, you want to glorify God? then glorify God the way you make shoes. This article went on to say, as Christians, we can faithfully serve God in a variety of vocations and jobs. We don't need to justify that work in terms of its spiritual value or evangelistic usefulness. We simply pursue our calling with new God-glorifying motives, goals, and standards. We live solely deo gloria for the glory of God alone. Glorifying God is not some mystical ultra-achievement of spirituality accomplished by a limited few. Living for the glory of God alone is the calling of every Christian. As we live our everyday lives to magnify God by the way we live out our relationships and our everyday routines, we do things differently because we don't do it for us. We don't do it for our employer. We don't do it for our family. We don't do it to make money. We do it for the glory of God. That's why Paul told the Corinthians that they were to live for the glory of God in everything. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. See, the the Christians at Corinth had a question. Now that I'm a Christian, how do I live? How do I live this out for God's glory? So if I go to a house next door to my neighbor and he's a pagan, he doesn't believe in God, and he serves up a meal made with meat he got from the market that offers that meat to idols. They buy it from the temple and they serve it to me. What am I supposed to do? He's serving me meat offered to idols. Or what if he gives me something to drink and I know the cup he just gave me was used to offer a drink offering to one of his pagan idols. What am I supposed to do with this cup he just gave me? Paul told him: look, if it isn't sin, if it isn't morally wrong, And if it isn't causing someone else to stumble by what you're doing, then whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. That's why this week in the workbook we wrote, we glorify God by believing God. We glorify God by loving God. We glorify God by obeying God. We glorify God by loving others, especially our enemies. We glorify God when we share the gospel, when we pray, when we give, when we serve. We glorify God when we give an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. We glorify God when we stay true to our marriage vows. We glorify God when we're faithful in all the duties and responsibilities of life, whether great or small. In short, we glorify God when we worship. Worship is the expression of worth. And when someone or something is of ultimate worth to us, it shows up in the way we live. It shapes our priorities and affects the devotion we give. It determines how much of our mind is occupied with thinking of that someone or something. Which is why we asked the question this week, how would our lives be lived if God was of ultimate worth to us? And if making his glory known was our highest priority? What would be different? How would your tomorrow be different if that is the goal? How would my tomorrow be different? John Hanna, in his book, How Do We Glorify God, said the glory of God has moral implications. Our postmodern age is one of radical self-centeredness and narcissism, but soli Glory is a call to radical vision of God-centered living in all of life's many facets. The glory of God alone implies the right purpose for all of life, a God-centered purpose. All who share this radical view of Christianity make the ultimate purpose of life God's glory, not their own self-fulfillment or self-realization. John Piper once said, God's grace enables us to grow in an ever-increasing delight in God. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Which is why we asked the question this week of myself and all of us in the workbook. How satisfied are you with God? How satisfied are you with God? That's a probing question. Because your level of satisfaction with God will be directly related to the level of your desire for other things that you think you need in order to be satisfied. The more satisfied with God we are, the less we need other things or people to satisfy our deepest desires. The more we chase after other things, the greater we demonstrate our lack of satisfaction with God. The psalmist said in Psalm 145, verse 16, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. He saves them from sins for sure, but he also saves them from the endless and fruitless efforts of chasing after everything the world offers that never satisfies. And when you live to display God's glory in your life, you may get treated the way the world treated Jesus. And you may go through various trials and suffering of many kinds. Suffering and trials are all part of God displaying his glory in us. Which is why men like Paul and Peter could face their trials and be energized by them. Because they knew that their trials were increasing the glory that was being revealed in their lives. And if your highest aim is to bring glory to God, and you realize that even your suffering and trials are doing that. You begin to see your suffering and trials in a completely different light. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 8, verse 16? The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If, indeed, we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. That's why Paul went on to say, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We're being made like Jesus. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I don't have time to develop this today, but the scripture is clear about this. Jesus suffered in his passion in order to save us and bring glory to God. That glory could be restored. Jesus is still Suffering for that in me and in you and through us for that same glory. Which is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, the trials and the suffering, but on what is unseen, the glory. Since what is seen, the trials and suffering, are temporary. But what is unseen, the glory those things are producing, that's eternal. We wrote in the workbook this week, remember, displaying the glory of God and God displaying his glory in us has nothing to do with self-glorification. We don't seek to glorify ourselves or seek any glory for ourselves. The great reformer John Calvin once said, we never truly glorify him until we have utterly discarded our own glory. The elect are justified by the Lord in order that they may glory in him and in none else. Remember, God is inherently all-glorious. We can't make God more glorious. God through us and in all his works will make his glory known. Which is why the psalmist said in Psalm 115, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We want our lives to be lived solely deo gloria for the glory of God alone. And there are a few stories I've ever heard that capture the essence of solely deo gloria and the five souls better than the life of a young woman named Karen Watson. An average everyday girl, just like you and me. Attending a church in Bakersfield where our daughter Kelsey and our son-in-law Jeremy serve, Valley Baptist, where Karen grew up like every other kid, like every other young woman. But she felt a call of God on her life. So in 2003, she went out from the church to serve as a missionary in Iraq. On March 15, 2004, she and four other missionaries were gunned down and killed in Iraq. She knew the changes and she knew the dangers in her life that were going to happen before she ever left. She knew the risks. So she entrusted a letter to Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger to be read only in the event of her death if she didn't come back. When you walk in the office area at Valley, in one of those areas, there, you look to the left and on the wall, there's a copy of Karen's letter. It reminds everyone of what it means to live for the glory of God and what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Here's what the letter said Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place, I was called to Him. To obey was my objective, to suffer was expected. His glory my reward, his glory, my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I'm writing this as if I'm still working with my people group. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. In regards to any service for me, keep it small and simple. Yes, simply just preach the gospel. The bold and life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. And remember the missionary heart. Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you, too, and my church family. In his care, Salam, Karen. Did you hear what she wrote before she left? When God calls, there is no regret. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. And she said it again. His glory, my reward. People, this is what the Apostle Paul came to live. This is why he encouraged the Corinthians and all of us that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, to do it all for the glory of God. Soli del Gloria is the foundational truth to which all the other solas lead. David Van summed up the five solas like this in his book, Glory to God Alone. God's glory alone. Solely Dale glory is about God and how He glorifies Himself. But one magnificent way God glorifies Himself is through glorifying us and enabling us to glorify Him through faith, worship, and wholehearted service to Him and our neighbors. What a bounteous God we have, who has authored this story of divine glory, and has invited us to be such a vital part of it by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, all rooted in the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Pastor Phil and I, along with all the writers, editors, formatters, designers, prayer warriors, tech crews, construction crews, Singers, worship teams, small group coaches, small group leaders, and everybody who's had a hand in helping to shape this study over the last six weeks. It's been our hope and our prayer that you have been challenged, that you have been encouraged, and you have been strengthened, and you have been equipped. With such a rock-solid stand on these foundational truths that your relationship with God will never be shaken that you will understand what you have been given. And why after 500 years of Protestant history and thousands of years before that, going all the way back to the church 1,500 years earlier, why there have always been people who live by Scripture alone, Who lives sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. By scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. The foundational truths that still define our faith and will until the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. God, we have been so privileged. All of our attempts, God, in this study seem woefully inadequate when we think of the greatness of what each of these things are saying. But I thank you, God, for this time that we've had and this time this week to finish out our study in these five solas that have defined our faith for centuries. The rock-solid truths that give us an unshakable relationship with you. And I'm praying, God, as we leave this place, as we go out into our week, I'm praying that you will help us to live solely Deo Gloria. Because the foundational truths that defined our faith all these years, still do. And we're living for the praise of your glory. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.